Hey, Pronouncers, welcome back. We've got an awesome episode. Nikki Bowen out of Cotton Street Apparel. She went through a crazy rebrand from Machine Gun Graphics to Cotton Street Apparel. Um, and it really helped grow her sales in her, in her uh, city. So we're diving into that. We're diving into customers. She got rid of a big customer she lost and how she dealt with that and a bunch more. Before we get started, we've got four incredible sponsors you know their names. We know their names. Steven, you want to draw one out of the hat? Sure. We're going to start <laughs> We're going to start with Supercolor. Supercolor is the world's best heat transfer made for screen printers by screen printers. They understand the pressures and expectation of a screen printing business and that's why they pride themselves on being super fast and super easy. Um, when you've got hard to press garments like a North Face, Supercolor can come through for you. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a pickle. And Supercolor is the call that we always make. Experience them for yourself using promo code PRINTAVO15. Get 15% off your first order. Thanks so much, Supercolor. Multicraft Daddy, if you open up his account on Instagram and send him a DM, he's sending out PMI tape every single week to a lucky winner. Multicraft screen printing and digital supplies for over 50 years have been providing you with top brands at competitive pricing. And if you mention the Printavo pod, you get an extra 10% off your first order. Congrats to Multicraft for hitting 972 followers. Let's send them some more love, people. 28 more. All right, Bruce. You shouldn't spend all day cleaning dirty screens. Easyway's line of environmentally conscious chemicals will get the job done faster, more efficiently, and will cost you a fraction of the cost per screen. You know it very well at Campus, Campus Inc. We use 701 and 842. Um, and those are our favorite chemicals. If you value a company to help you with the how-tos, best practices, and questions, Easy Way is there. Give them a go. They are the easiest way. Thanks, Easy Way. Graphic Source. If you need a solution to improve efficiency and reduce costs in your art department, Graphics Source offers industry-leading outsourcing options for your shop. Campus Inc. plugs in... Is it three or four? I'm always mistaken. Uh, Nick corrected me and texted me and he goes, you have four artists, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Four artists that help plug in and do digitizing, SEPs. What else do I do for you guys? Uh, Back office. They work in Shopify. They're doing (laughs) mock-ups. Yeah, they're they're basically a huge part of our company. A lot of stuff. All right. For over 30 years in the game, they know exactly what a shop needs. They work with tons of shops and plug into your shop management system, Printavo, Inksoft, whatever it is, Shopify. Hit them up. Printavo Pod 2.4. Printavo Pod 24. That gets you 50% off your first vector set or digitize order to try it out. And then they've got the full staffing solution if you need from there. All right. Let's jump on in. Nikki Bowen, Cotton Street Apparel, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Second time on the show. Uh, I, know, I don't know if you knew like this, what, Steve. It was like two years ago. Maybe, okay. Maybe a little bit. So then this is, like a, this is like a recheck-in. How's your new year been? It's good. How about your guys? My January is starting off pretty stellar, so I'll take that. Really? More than usual yeah. or what? Just from a work standpoint, last year, January for us did not start off great. So just... Week one, just it, it felt like sales were coming in. What do you think? And that's not as normal. That's not right? normal. That's abnormal. 
Well, typically for my shop, we see, I usually, so we typically close the week after Christmas, right? But I usually still work because I have a lot of customers that are trying to spend money before the end of the year. So they don't care what part of January they get those goods in. They just want to dump the dollars per whatever instructions their accountants have given them. So like this year, we didn't really see that influx of sales, but January week one, it's like all those same people that would typically hit us at the end of December just started like popping in. Hmm. That's pretty sick. Interesting. Yeah. Did you do anything to like forecast that or know like, okay, January is going to be a little rough. So I'm going to get ahead of it or do anything different this year than you've done in the past. So we always know for our shop that January and February are slow months. I think every shop has their downtime and Every time I talk to a new shop, they seem to have different months that are their downtime. So mine are January and February. So we kind of know that we build in that cushion for it. We make sure that like we've got money stashed away in account if we happen to have a slower month um, that rides us through. But last year we ended up um, losing a high dollar client. Um, nothing that we did. They just decided they didn't want to continue with their business based on the current trends going on last year. And so I think last year, January and February was just a little bit harder on us. And then we spent the rest of the year just basically playing makeup from losing that client. Nikki, could you say how much revenue was lost from that client? Um, 160 grand Oof, that, a year. Yeah. That one hurts. And, and they were really on a, they were on a growth trend too. So I understand why they chose to, um, stop running their business for the time being. But it, it also made me kind of sad because I'm like, oh, guys, just stick it out this year. Like, I really think that you'll make it out. But they didn't want to try for that. Was that because they were they totally pivoting? Closed. Wait, they closed. They shut down their company. They shut down completely. I, I don't want to really like say certain things because it'll be obvious who it is. Um, I understand why they shut their company down. They did it for several reasons. They, they have a little bit of a financial background. So for them, they're watching market market trends. And then they also have a family that they want to ensure they're able to take care of. That That's really interesting. Like having like putting all your eggs in, you know, having those kind of customers that you rely on so heavily and then one next day they could just be like, we're not working with you anymore. Yep. Do, do you have a lot of other like big ticket clients like that? I've got one other one. Um, and they spent the first part of the year kind of putting themselves on pause, but they ended up coming back in full force. So they did the same dollars that they did um, the previous year. But yes, it was a good lesson learned, actually. Um, it, it was a lesson of maybe don't pack out our one press for just that client um, and maybe start to look for some clients that can make up for the sales that we're losing in a time like that. But it is fun to work with one big client. It's fun because they did a lot of like really like high color count sim process jobs. So they're kind of that client that tested the gambit on what we were able to do as a shop and what we could produce as a shop. But in the same respect, I could run a thousand one color front left chest prints and make the same money in half the time than I would make on some of, you know, like some of their jobs. So kind of one of those things that started to really like make us look at how much time we were spending on some of their jobs. 
and put us into a space where we want to start looking for some clients that have lower color counts just so we can turn the presses faster. Do you think if you see a client that's growing, because I'm assuming they didn't start off at that size with you. So, you know, if it, if a customer's growing very small with us, we grew together. And so, you know, if they grow over, let's pick a percent, uh, 10% of your sales, does that start to red? Although that's awesome, right? Does it, is that like a red flag now or how do you treat it? I think in the future, to guarantee X amount of press time for a client that's bringing in that much revenue. I I think that's a place where we as a company should start looking into contracts just to ensure like, Hey, we're giving you this much dedicated time and this much dedicated space inside of our shop. So if we get to a point where we need to give a specific customer that much press time or even their own press, like let's say we bought a piece of equipment for a client like that. I, I think that's a space where we need to start looking into contracts as a company. What do you mean by the, the contracts as in signing something legally with them to say they yeah, I must mean, do I, X I dollars a year? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've spoken with a few other people that have some of the same size clients and those are the routes that they've taken. If they've gone out of their way to purchase equipment for specific clients because they've needed to upgrade their shop or their processes, they've had those clients sign contracts that say, for X amount of years, this client's going to spend X amount of dollars with you. I was talking to someone, I want to say it was like rich at culture studios and they were talking about the myths of contract printing. They're like back in the day, contract printing was much different than contract printing is today. Uh, but my question is, okay, I'll just put a situation out there. You have a client, they're spending a couple hundred thousand dollars a year with you. They sign a contract at some point they can't afford it. They're going broke. They can't pay you anymore. They don't like you. You don't like them. And they're ready to like, they don't, it's not, it's, it's, it's over. Like the relationship is, is, is sour. What good does a contract do? Are you going to take them to court? I agree with you on that. And I think that's a case by case basis, you know, because I think that's the world that you get into Let's say you're going to fire a client. I think that falls in that same realm. They've become a problem client for you and they're costing you money. So just like a client with no contract, that's just someone that you would end up firing if they didn't want to be with you anymore. I would never, if someone's going broke and even if they had a contract with us, I wouldn't want someone to spend every last dollar they had just to fulfill a contract. Have you done something like that, Stephen? So this is interesting. This is something we think about a lot, right? Because we get licenses and get in bed with the schools, right? And these schools will produce hundreds and thousands of dollars, if not sometimes millions of dollars of revenue. We do it with our national partners. And we take on the burden of a lot of their work, whether that's 3PL, whether that's handling their marketing, fulfillment, reporting, all that stuff. And Clients are going to take you for granted if you're not very clear about that upfront. Um, now, I've had clients that have have like, you know, I used to be very contract focused, and then I realized that the contract it's it's a piece of paper that kind of helps and guides you, but you're not going to take them to court, right? Like you're not going to hire lawyers and do this and that and and all that. We've seen shops just shut down and shutter because of getting belly on contracts, right? Like companies that are owed millions of dollars 
And so for me, what we're starting to do more of, and I attribute Adam Cook, um, who was actually an early employee at Printavo, is he calls them, uh, the word he uses are MOUs, Memorandums of Understanding. And it's essentially like setting really, really, is this, at Bruce, you know, you know, Adam, this is such an Adam thing to like say. Adam teaches uh, at prof- uh, as a professor at Northwestern as well. And he's like, we need to just set really clear expectations of how this will help both of us, but how it will mutually hurt both of us if something goes wrong. And the things that we're going to do, the things that we expect you to do, and we are going to check in on that kind of memorandum or that that notice like every quarter um almost like a dating contract right and it's like so that all of a sudden at the ninth hour we don't get hit with a decision that wasn't in our control but really gravely affects us um and so i think it's it's you know it's trying to forecast that and see it and and almost like treating those clients like partners um and knowing that you're in it together I think is is like what we're trying to do, but that's something we think about a lot. Okay, I want to play devil's advocate with you. Then, how do you guys think about then it being just like a a, a lease contract for a for a you know either equipment or an apartment? It may even simpler, like it's rent. Let's say you signed an eighteen month lease, and you know you're three months in, you lose your job, can't pay rent. Is that the landlord's fault? And then who, you know, now the landlord, yes, has to definitely decide, are they going to take you to small claims court based on how much you owe them? Now, I'm assuming if it's $100,000 or something significant, there's financial incentive there um, to to try to get a piece of that, uh, depending on, again, what you said, Nikki, the investment that they've made into it and, and what's happened and, and the circumstances and so on. Um, like, I guess, are we being naive or ignoring that that could be a, a like making sure that things actually happen, especially if you put a lot on the line with either buying equipment or setting aside production time or hiring staff or so on as well? I like the idea that um, Stephen was just giving. It's more a list of creating black and white um, expectations. This is what I'm going to do. This is what you're going to do. I think you're always going to have a situation like that, Bruce. And I think that's where the human side of you has to kick in when you have something like that happen and you just, you have to decide the best course of action. I legally not going to go after somebody because they're on hard times. But okay. Let's just say they committed to the work with you and another printer came in. (laughs) Yeah. I just think uh, it's how bad is it? Yeah. Like say, say they like stole work from you or something like that. Like say it was, ill intent, right? Like someone came in and, and, you know, they kind of signed something that said, okay, we're committed to working with you for one year. And, um, next thing you know, you found out they're actually printing with someone else. I think that's where you have to get lawyers involved and you've got to sit down and decide, like, am I going to lose money by going after you? Or is it worth my time to walk away and just go find new clients to fill the space that I've got available now? Yeah. Yeah. It definitely seems like a sliding scale. But I don't know. I think this the second you get lawyers involved, okay, let's just say you you've hired some lawyers and you're like, okay, I'm I'm gonna go after them. Well, you're probably not getting you're probably spending a ton of money on those lawyers. So you should that's gonna burn at three hundred dollars an hour, a lot more than your presses are doing. 
And your reputation is going to be that you're going after your clients. Like your reputation, it it just gets pretty bad pretty quick. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a win. I don't think our industry is set up for it. I like I said, it for me to want to take legal action against someone and like really go after them, it would have to be some big dollars involved. Mm-hmm. I like. I don't know that I can think of a specific scenario that would make me go after someone. Bruce, do you, do you hang out with lawyers a lot? Uh, for better or for worse. I mean, I, I do think that, that letters, um, letters from lawyers definitely get people moving and, and motivated because it's, it's scary to get that. But you're right. I think it's, it's definitely depends on the situation, but I do see, and this happens to a lot of similar shops where people invest in new equipment and things because of some sort of larger client that they're investing in. So the question is really, should there be, if I'm signing contracts to buy this equipment and getting all this, you know, all this expensive stuff in, and I have lease agreements and so on. Should I have lease agreements with you um, because you're driving this and I'm trying to help you guys out as well? And and that's well, where, you, yeah. Merch people what if you aren't get to that, that point though, maybe, maybe that's where you start to treat it like, um, like a loan where you start doing background checks, you start doing credit checks, you start looking at the history of their company. Like, I, I think those are all like, valuable things to look at before you go down the road of making like massive purchases. I've thankfully not made a massive purchase just for a client. The upgrades that we've done in our shop have been purely because they're things that we wanted um, yeah. to do at the time. I, I feel like us merch folks are not smart enough to do that. I'm just going to say like, we're, we're not going to do that, right? We salivate no. to these clients. We will drop everything for them because we think that it is our ticket to growth. And I think that's scary because you validate the business on what you have today without focusing on like, okay, if I don't have it in six months, oh, we'll just figure it out when we get there. And it's like, you're powerless then. Um, But I'm wondering, I'll throw another example out. If you had a huge client and you needed to bring in more equipment, have you ever seen a situation where the client buys the equipment, like puts it in for you? I have not. That sounds interesting, though. I wonder if anyone's ever. I've. I. I don't know if I've. I don't know. Um. Someone once approached me. We we're we we're selling a ton of glassware, like um, pint glasses for bars, and we were ordering them. And the bar owner's like, "What if I bought the the pint glass printer for you?" And I was like, "We don't know how to print pint glasses, so don't do that." But I don't know. I'm like, is that is that making them a partner of your business or? Could you start a company for them with them to like embed yourself in there? So, you know, let's just say a company was spending a million bucks a year with me and I'm like, hey, you know, I can save you a little bit of money. I'm going to actually make you a part owner of this section and you'll get to share in that. But you know, you have guaranteed revenue. I don't know, Bruce, have you ever thought of that? Maybe I'm overthinking it. I I do worry the risk factor is still there. Now maybe you de-risk the fact of the capital expenditure, but you still like if they go under, they go under in either scenario. And um, now maybe you're not on the hook for for the equipment, um, but maybe you are because you're the you're the partner that's still operating where the other one has just disappeared. But it is interesting. And and from a printable side, we've had that from like features, you know people would want to buy stuff or, or things like that. And so it is, it is a thing for sure. And I'm always surprised by it, but it is definitely a thing. 
I would want to do my homework. I'd want to know what the purpose of bringing it in-house would be. Like, are they just looking to save money? Do they want quicker turnaround times? I think I would really want to know what their expectation was. Because you think about buying, how much does one of those printers go for? Or one of those pieces of machines, do you know? I don't know, probably fifteen <laughs> to $30,000. Yeah, there's some that are pad printed. There's some that are screen printed. There's some that are digitally printed. So... I don't know. I, I have to know the reasons. Yeah. Nikki, what else what else have you set for this year to say uh I want to change or make better or improve? This is my focus. So we spent the last two years growing out production and fine-tuning like our processes, making sure that our press operators were on Kyle's level of like expertise when it comes to printing to a point where Kyle doesn't have to necessarily be right beside them or holding their hands to tell them what to do during the printing process. I wanted many little Kyles running around. Um, so we focused solely on that, kind of coasted for a while um, from a sales standpoint, because that's what we wanted to do. But this year, our focus is to actually build out a sales department. Who's Kyle? I only know Kyle, Kyle at Shurkong. <laughs> you only know Kyle at Shurkong? How do you know, you know <laughs> Kyle? No, I'm just kidding. Kyle is the other co-owner of uh, Cotton Street Apparel. Gotcha. And, um, and then you all went through a little like transformation, right? Like you rebranded the company. So I think the last time you're on there was like machine gun graphics. Now we it's were. cotton street. You talk a little bit about we that. Were. I can. So we, first of all, we reached out to an outside company to redo our branding. So it was complete like turnkey. We had the website looks beautiful, with, by the way. If you want a good example dude, of I, uh, a screen printing website. I love it so much. We um, we tried to rebrand ourselves probably about five years ago with the Machine Gun Graphics name. And it more or less was, we were just like a hidden shop. You know, we, we worked for like people in town. We didn't really promote ourselves that much. We were happy with where we were at with it being just me and Kyle until we got to a point that we weren't. Um. We originally reached out to this company and I kind of wanted us to change our name, had no clue what to change it to. Also didn't want to shoot ourselves in the foot. And I felt like the best course of action was to go for an ad agency that rebranding is their job, you know? What does something like that cost? I got a quote last week for (laughs) $100,000. Holy shit. I was like, what does that include? Like website and and branding and everything? (laughs) They're they're local to us and they're one of my clients. Ah, okay. Did you yeah. trade them some shirts? I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's, they're worth that's awesome. They're worth every penny that you would pay them. They work with some bigger name clients, but then they also make it an effort to work with all the local um clients as well and give them better deals just so that they can have better branding. But got it. So anyway, so we approached them. Um we said Kyle was kind of iffy about changing the name. I get it. He named this company when he was like 17 years old. So that's, that's a huge blow. Um, And that's, I think that's, that's difficult, you know, to come to that conclusion that it's time to move on from one name to another. So this company took machine gun graphics and tried to rebrand it. Then they had two other names and um, branding marks that they came up with. And then the last one was cotton street apparel. And I felt so bad because we're sitting there, they're giving us the presentation and machine gun graphics has like three marks. Nothing is balanced. And you're kind of like, okay, I guess, 
I guess that's what we do with that. They show us one more with a different name. Go for the this third one, different name. And then the fourth one was Cotton Street Apparel. All the marks. Everything is balanced. The branding is just beautiful. I can actually send you guys like a, a packet with all the marks in it. You guys can like show that if you want to. Um, it's been so well received since we switched it over. I got to a point, we still collect um, leads from the new website. But we also still have the old website up because we have a Sage account. So we have all of our promotional products that are on that one. For the first like year, I left it completely branded as Machine Gun Graphics just so that like all of our local clientele, as we were doing all of our pushes, would still see that Machine Gun Graphics was still here. We were just rebranding as Cotton Street Apparel. But I was getting leads from Cotton Street Apparel and Machine Gun Graphics. And I wish that I had like hot, like hard, raw data on this. But I got to You're a point. About two weeks. Yeah, I got to the point where two weeks into January last year, I started noticing like leads coming in from both websites. I kept a tally on my desk and everything coming in from Cotton Street Apparel, like right around that 95 percent mark was closing. Really? And I was getting no pushback on pricing. I didn't have customers arguing with me over like garment styles. It's it's almost like it leveled us up. Hmm. Whereas machine gun graphics, very few things were closing off of it. And the ones that were, it, it's like I was spending so much time going back and forth with the customers on pricing. Why they do you just think that didn't was? Value us. Like why the way higher conversion rate? I mean, obviously, it sounds a lot more like lovey-dovey than machine gun graphics, but... Yeah, I think there there's several things? reasons for that. I think we were getting better SEO ratings. Um, we were getting a lot more traffic on Google. Um, so we're getting more clients, for one, off the new name. For two, it, we're appealing to a new audience at that point. Uh, we were already working with a lot of schools and churches, but we started getting more churches and more schools. And it's almost like we created ourselves as a decorated apparel company and not just a screen printing or graphics company. The other thing I started to notice with machine gun graphics is it had the word graphics at the end of it. And when I was in retail, we used to call shirts graphic t-shirts and somewhere between my days in retail and now we don't use graphic anything to describe a t-shirt anymore. Even when you go into retail stores, they don't call them graphic t-shirts anymore. When someone sees the word graphic or graphics, they think graphic designer. They think someone that designs logos, t-shirts, art. And we don't do in-house art. We're strictly just embroidery and screen printing. You know, there's, there's something I look at. This is really interesting. When I look at a website or a company... Bruce is a great negotiator. Bruce always taught me you should always ask for a better price. <laughs> no matter what. It could be Taco Bell. Bruce will ask. Yeah. Um, no more Taco Bell. <laughs> you, sorry. You can't have Taco Bell right now. You're on. Yeah. Well, at least Taco Bell is not what gave you the... Uh, yeah. Yeah. We love our tummy Taco issues. Bell. Um, well, Bruce has a tummy ache. Uh, <laughs> but when you see a really nice brand and it just looks beautiful, you're like, no, that's not a company that negotiates. And you just kind of like assume whatever, like when it just looks nice from the outside. Mm -hmm. I think when you see that it's more mom and pop, when you see it's maybe ruggedness or kind of the holes and stuff like that, you're like, oh, I can lean on them. I can push on them. I'm going to be able to negotiate with this guy or this girl, you know? And so 
I think there's something to be said about having a really nice brand and it's almost like your front door looks really good and it sets the precedent that we're a high-end company. Um, which I think is is interesting is, you know, if I work with like a contract company, I'm always negotiating. If I'm checking out online, you can't negotiate, right? Uh, I think that's that's really, really, really interesting. So for those that were kind of thinking about how much it costs to brand or go through a rebrand, um, there was something you said there where you found a local company that was talented at this. And I think there's merit in hiring an outside agency. Um, I think that there's that's powerful. We all think we're artists, but when you see how the agencies work, it's a little bit different. Um, and whether you pay them up front or you trade for services, like they're going to need merchandise. So if you printed them you know, five or ten grand worth of stuff, they could do a whole build for you and like revolutionize your business. But I think it's appropriate to pay anywhere between five and ten thousand dollars for a small business to get rebranded. I don't know. Does that feel right? I think I've. I've heard the upwards of ten to fifteen thousand okay. dollars, but we asked we asked for a lot more marks than they would typically give with a package like that. The reason we did that is because I you get customers all the time that have like these little small rinky dink logos that they've gotten from somewhere, and they don't work across all garments, pins, patches, whatnot. So I actually I had them create me like ten different marks, and I did it with a purpose of being able to show clients when they were in our door of like. You see this logo, it would not work on this, you know, this item, and this is why. Um, so we got a lot more than most, but yeah, five to fifteen. It also depends on if you want the website. If you don't need them to create that website for you, that's a cost that you can factor out as well. I would totally have them do it. I We're think going, that, yeah, yeah. The website's like the best part. That sounds about right, especially for your new conversion rate. I mean, you, you did this January last year. Why then versus it sounds like sooner could have been uh what even took bigger so long? It you know what it was on our back burner. We were busy. So like even during COVID, COVID is like probably one of the 2019 is probably our year that we just like really spiked up in business. And then obviously COVID just kept that going because we started working with like so many different types of clients. Um, you know, Kyle and I've been busy and we put things like that on the back burner, because in that moment, it wasn't important. Hindsight, looking back, I wish we had done it sooner. How, how do you split up um, the company with like Kyle? It sounds like Kyle's on the production side. Are you then on the sales end of it? Yeah. So Kyle's on the production side of it. And then I have everything that's like sales, business related and admin. Gotcha. So what does you say? That's said- why that's Yeah. But, um, as we were like, as we were chatting, um, you'd said like sales is going to be your focus this year and outbound sales strategy. What is your sales strategy right now? Is it primarily inbound? Do you have a team? Tell us about that. No, it's just me. (laughs) Um, it is just me. And last year I came off production a hundred percent. And my focus was just to like foster the clients that we already had and check in with them, work a little bit closely, go through our customer roster every so often and figure out who hadn't ordered with us for a while and just reach out to them um, and kind of build that actual relationship, which is something I don't think we've done in the past. Um, We've been more focused on production and letting the work come to us versus going out and getting it. So so how do you balance the chaos of owning a company 
and the and the discipline of going back to sales. Like I am the best salesman at campusing, but I'm an awful salesperson, right? Like same with Bruce. Uh, how, how are you able to be like, yeah? How are you able to balance that? Because I feel like that always goes on the back burner. I have my entire day is structured out. So I still I come to my shop. Um, Monday through Thursday, our shop does four tens. So on Fridays, I work from home. I come to my shop every single day and just being at my desk kind of puts me in that mental structure of whatever my task load is for the day. Um, when I was in retail, we had sales goals by the hour, right? And so I did the same thing with the shop whenever I built out how much money I needed to bring in every single day. Beyond that, I literally like when I come in first thing in the morning between seven and 8 a.m., I order apparel, for example, and I do that because there's no one else in the shop between that time to interrupt me <laughs> while I'm placing those orders. So as we're going into this year, in order for us to grow, we have to take on an out an outside sales staff. It's just one of those things I'm maxed out and I can't deal with any more clients on top of what I'm already doing. And I know that. And I'd rather us start to grow. Do you have someone that does inside sales that's just an order taker or anything? It's just you. It is literally me. Wow. Yep. So a repeat customer that just says, hey, I need 100 shirts. You're entering that into Printavo. You're, I don't know if you use Printavo. You're entering that into I whatever. I do. Uh, it's, yep. no, yeah, it's, it's okay. I do. Um, I enter everything. Have you ever thought of hiring like an order taker just to like put this order and put this order and put this order in so that you can go more high level. I have. And so our, our step one is to hire some outside salespeople. And then once we get those people in place, the next step will be bringing someone in to start alleviating me from that role. It's a very hard, like what, what are you doing to try to hire that outside sales role? Are you, you know, like it's, it's one of the hardest things to, I've just heard, I always get the texts of struggling with outside sales, struggling with outside sales, struggling with outside sales. Yeah. Um, what are you doing to fill that role, like to make sure it's it's worthwhile? So we already knew back in November that we kind of made our final decision that this is the path that we wanted to take. We've been doing interviews since then. I think I had like four second interviews last week and two of those people will be getting brought on. That's awesome. So you're, you're like pot committed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm ready to like, I don't want to say I'm ready to move on from this position, but I'm ready to focus more on our actual business, being able to come off of production last year and focus on some of the actual like business sides of the business. Just it, it kind of hit my brain in a different way of like, okay, this is really important. You know, if we want to grow, if we want to get past the point that we're at right now, like we've got to start focusing on focusing on some other sides of the business. Were there any good interview questions you asked for that salesperson? That I always ask you know, people what their favorite animal is. <laughs> what, what, what do you learn from that? It's, a, it's something I used to do when I was in retail. We would always do like these big group interviews. Um, and I always did it as an icebreaker because I felt like, but you ask somebody that, then they tell you what their favorite favorite animal is. Sometimes you get some really good ones. Or I might ask why it's their favorite animal and it loosens them up a little bit. You know, it just, it puts them in a place where they're like ready to talk to you versus being super nervous about sure. an interview. That makes sense. Is there another yeah. good one that you ask? No, because I think other things typically come up naturally after the, what's your favorite animal? 
I'm also an you, animal lover. So. <laughs> <laughs> Steven, do you have any good uh, interview questions that are like, when you ask it, you're like, okay, I have a pretty clear direction on this person. Um, I'm basically my, I'll ask, um, if I were to call your former employer or your best friend or your family member, what would they tell you you need to work on so that I don't have to find out about it on the first day? Um, and so, you know, if they say they're, and then I'll brief it, brief it with, you can't say you're a perfectionist, (laughs) um, because that's bullshit. Uh, cause I really want to know. And then I'll ask them questions like, what drives you nuts and what irritates you? What, what gets you flustered? Um, and then, uh, you know, I'll also ask some like committal questions because I think sometimes when we're hiring our first or second salespeople or we're hiring early, we sometimes feel desperate or we oversell or overtalk. And so, you know, I was taught once if you're a recruiter, you're doing one of the highest forms of sales you need to turn it on them to make them want it every part of the interview process. And so I'll ask questions like, we've built a really, really tight-knit group here that you know focuses on culture and values each other and develops one another. We don't have a lot of turnover. Uh, if I were to give you a role here, what would make you stay for a long time? And I just want to know what their commitment level looks like. Um, you know, and get them to kind of vocalize it and be like, no, no, no that's something I want to be a part of. I, I'm here to stay. Um, those kind of things. The other thing that we've done when we're hiring is um, we've shortened the interview cycle. I say that when someone starts the interview process, we need to have a decision on them in less than two weeks. Um, because the longer it goes, the more it wanders off track and you might lose them. Yeah. Um, and probably the last thing is um, I stay as the owner pretty guarded um, where you know uh, I won't kind of let my guard down because I need them to know like how serious this is and how seriously I'm going to take it for them. Um, And then I let them kind of do some reverse interviews with some other employees so that they can learn more about me and what it's like to work here. But we've definitely had our ups and downs with hiring or a bad hiring process. Um, It's got to be calculated though. So I was just talking to someone, uh, Tyler, the other day about this. What do you got, Bruce? What questions do you ask? Um, Nikki, oh, what do what do we? Yeah, I, mean, I just want to know the, what you because you're always recruiting. We, yeah, we we try to focus. I, I agree on the time frame. We have definitely lost good candidates if we drag it too long. And you know, if a good candidate is looking, they're going to get snapped up pretty quick because someone else also realizes that too. And so we have done more group interviews. Um, and or try to just make the turnaround. Like if the phone screen goes good, it's like, Hey, look, are you free, you know, tomorrow or the next day? And then the final interviews with a group of the, the final people that I want in there so that we all do it at the same time. And then that way they, um, and it, and it's not just like managers, you know, it could be like me, it could be another sales rep that would be on their team, uh, sales manager. But, um, we used to have like a support rep in there anybody really that just can listen to them and say, yeah, they're good. Or hmm, this is kind of weird when they said this or brought this up. Cause I also find that as the owner, you get desperate, especially as you interview longer and you just bum rush candidates in. And, uh, you're just like, I, I mean, I think they're good. They're good. Right. <laughs> you know, you're like leading, you're like leading them in. Um, but the rest of the team doesn't have that desperation that you're feeling. And so they are a really good second check. I always do the 
the secondary interview with a third party. So we use um, this lady, Wendy, BHRS Partners. Um, and she's really good because for whatever reason, people just tell a third party something different um, or, or more in depth. They feel more comfortable. Maybe I need to ask the animal question. <laughs> and then... Uh, and then the project. So, uh, you know, like pitch me whatever you're selling before, like, and I'll kind of be not a jerk, but like, I know the pushbacks that people will give us. So I will sort of use those same pushbacks on them, you know, maybe leave the call like, Hey, I'm sorry. I gotta, I gotta bounce like, um, and see what they do. Do they get your phone number? Do they, do they get your name? Do they try to schedule a next step with you? Um, do they say that they're going to send you a follow-up, right? Things like that, that, those little tidbits that show, okay, they're trying to perfect their sales craft versus they're just trying to fill a role. Cause I think also sales roles are one where anybody and everybody, if they don't have a role right now or job was going to try it and see if they could just do it just to fill it. And that's unfortunate for so far. Yeah. So far, everyone that I've interviewed has been a referral to me from someone else. Hmm. So I've been handed like, almost pre-qualified people for those roles, which is I typically, even in the past, when we've hired for production, I've never posted that we were hiring except for one time. And I got really lucky with the person that we got off of that. But outside of that, for production, we do the interview process. I just kind of sit there. I I like to let them talk for 80% of it. I'll just completely get quiet and let them go. And if they get quiet, you know, I'll fill that void with a question somewhere. But nine times out of 10, if you do the awkward silence, they just keep talking. Have you ever had an interview where they just go for like 10 minutes and you're like, (laughs) yes. And I'm just like, this person hasn't, they're still on their intro. All right. Sorry, Nikki, go ahead. You were talking. (laughs) (laughs) No, you just reminded me of this kid that I interviewed in retail that spent 10 minutes telling me how he got arrested or something. (laughs) Hmm. Um, Appreciate the time. (laughs) Yeah, right. No, he actually was a, you know what? We hired him. He was a great employee actually. Um, But no, I, I, I'm kind of like, I like to fill people out. You know, I like to listen to him talk. Like not everybody's a bad person because they've made, bad choices in life. But so anyways, we interview for production, then we'll bring them in for a working interview and we'll just kind of take them downstairs and spend an entire eight hour day letting them help us. And I'm looking for, are they jumping in willingly to help? Are they asking questions? Are they trying to learn about this process? The last person that we did it with, he came from another shop, but he came from a shop that didn't do water-based printing. So he and I were on the press together and I think Kyle popped over and started asking like, you know, printing questions. He's like, you know, I know you come from a plastisol shop. Um, how do you feel about water-based printing? And the kid like lit up and all of a sudden he had questions for us. He wanted to know what he could learn from us and how he could grow from us. And so the, those are the people that I want inside of my business. I'm okay with hiring people that you may not be around forever. Maybe they tell you like, hey, I'm only going to be here for like five years and then I want to grow and be at another point in life in that five years. I'm okay with that. It doesn't bother me that someone wants to grow themselves, whether they stay in this industry or move outside of this industry. But when people are here, I want them to at least be excited about the job. Definitely. There is a uh, a thing that we talk about on here, which is you know, trying to cleanse your, your customers of, uh, bad or unprofitable customers. 
you have a, a story of firing a client that wasn't a good fit? I I mean, I've fired a few, but <laughs> I think you just have to, it's a story of like starting out with someone one way and then getting to a point where you've outgrown them versus them outgrowing you. So we used to have this client, I'm going to try to make it to where we won't know exactly who it is by how I say it. Um, they used to get their own goods produced, right? And it was all professionally produced, but they would dye their own garments. Like in so their when own, we first started working with them, their own dye house, like their own bath, like bathtub at home oh, yep. at their house. Bruce, do yeah. not get into tie dyeing, but <laughs> stick to heat pressing. <laughs> well, it wasn't tie dye. Uh, anyways, so they were dyeing their own products, which, you know, we're in an arts based town. So some of that stuff is kind of cool to be a part of, you know, like it's almost like you're starting with someone when they're first starting out their business. Um, they have a great business plan. They're literally just looking at us to do the printing. So we take that on. And that's back in the day when we had our Falcon press. So it was before we bought the rocks. We had that customer for quite a while. And as they grew, so did we. But as we grew, we had to start changing our expectations of them. Like, for example, you're not going to get these garments printed the same day that you drop them off anymore. We have to be prepared. I need you to send me an email. Give me at least five days. Like, send me an email saying, hey, we're dying this today. This is what I plan to bring to you on Friday. That way, at least I know what's going on, right? Again, small shop, not really thinking about it. You get to a point of COVID. We grew. She grew. She's selling an item that sold very well during COVID. Um, we bought our new oval. We still had our Falcon up and running. We were running um, oversized prints and sleeve prints on the Falcon because we could not get the pallets for the oval for about six to eight months during COVID. So the Falcon goes down one day and uh, Workhorse actually bought that company at some point and they service it, right? So the battery in it died. We send that piece off to get it fixed. That's like a three-week turnaround time. So that's a press that's down for like three weeks. Still can't get pallets for the oval yet. We're communicating back and forth with this client. She lost it on us. And she came at us as if we didn't want to work with her anymore. Um, because we had grown as a company. And I was like, that's not true. If we didn't support you and didn't want to work with you anymore, we wouldn't print this stuff because I make a lot more money printing these jobs over here. Then I do printing this contract job. But it just got to a point where nothing we did satisfied her anymore. She didn't have good practices with how she was dyeing her garments. So we were, we printed a garment one time. It was like an off yellow garment, right? We printed it, sent it through the dryer, comes out on the other end and it has like scorch marks on it. It literally, it looked like if you took something and sat it under a flash for too long and it had like that yellow hue to it. Like, well, it didn't look like that when it went in the dryer to begin with. So I have a mom that has, that worked for Hanes for almost 30 years, right? She's worked in the dye process, the shipping process, the production, anything that has to do with Hanes, she's been a part of it. So I reach out to her and I'm like, hey, I want to ask you a question about dye processes and get your help on this. So that's when we learned that the customer was still leaving chemicals 
in the product. So in their process at home, they weren't even removing all the chemicals anymore. Mm -hmm. So for a long time, we were just doing white discharge and black discharge. And I kept telling her, I'm like, hey, there's a problem with your garments. I don't know how long we can keep printing these and me feel good about the product being out there because I don't know what kind of ramifications against us, you know, if something happens. But then we started doing color discharge for her. And if you know anything about discharge, it was not mixing very well with the chemicals that she was not washing out of her garments. So we ended up having to cut ties with her. And I, I, I think it was a good lesson learned, though, of like red flags to look for when you start to work with a client that might be producing their own goods. If you like I, I have a mom that worked for Haynes for 30 years. I'm fortunate that I can call her and say, hey, I'm seeing this problem with these garments. And she off the head, you know, off the top of her head knows exactly what it is. And I talk to a customer and they don't want to receive that information. Just kind of like it's time to cut ties with those people. Yeah. This is the red flags episode. This yeah. is the red flags episode. <laughs> no, I, I think you make you make some really good points, Nikki. I at Campus Inc., we we say we have clients that let us cook and then clients that want to be in the kitchen. Um and we love the clients that let us cook and we earn their trust to do that. Um, come into our restaurant, sit down and watch us cook. Um, don't come in back and tell us how to make our steaks or bring your own, bring your own hors d'oeuvres, you know? And I think it's a, it's a good lesson learned. Like you said, that, uh, um, when you see those things early, like, no, like, Ooh, this could get bad or out of hand. And, um, if clients are coming to you with those specific things, it's probably because a lot of other people also have probably said no to them. Maybe <laughs> been like, uh, no, we're not doing that. Well, and so, you know, be careful. Right. So, yeah. Well, they didn't say no to this person originally. We just happened to be one of the first people that they started working with just because of the reputation in the area. And we don't shy away from certain types of projects. We still want to keep some kind of artistic value to our shop mm -hmm. as we grow, but you know, just again, being an arts-based city, it's like you don't want to walk away from certain opportunities. But when you're working with a client that as they grow, they're not trying to better their processes or better themselves. And all of a sudden it starts to affect what you're doing inside of your business. It's just time to move on. Nikki, we appreciate you uh, being honest. Congratulations as well on the Women's in Screen Printing Awards and the rebrand and all the growth that you're experiencing. Good luck with outbound sales. I think in two years, we'll have you back and see if you just cool. have just this crazy outbound sales machine. <laughs> um, or just grinding out solo dough. Either way, you know, it'd be fun to, 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 to chat as well again. But... <clears throat> Thank you, pronouncers. We'll see you guys at Long Beach. I think this episode may come out by long, before Long Beach. And uh, if not, hopefully you had an awesome trade show and we appreciate you listening. See you in the next episode. Thanks so much for listening. Hopefully that was informative. Don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to like. Don't forget to hit the bell for notifications if you enjoyed this video. If you enjoy all the stuff we're putting out, it's really helpful. We love to just be able to see it. That means that we're doing a good job to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications and hit the like button. And I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.